Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Go ahead and open your notes up. Uh, if you haven't, we, we've offered this uh, for a few weeks now. If you haven't picked up a study guide for the book of Malachi, uh, these are actually, uh, if there are any copies left, they'll be by the door as you leave. But it contains notes for the entire sermon series along with some helpful tools uh, for you to be able to study the, the book of Malachi together and then do some further study at home. So let me encourage you to, to get a copy of that if you don't have one already. Before we launch into our study on the book of Malachi, though, I, I just want to celebrate a few things with you. Um, yesterday, we, we met uh, for what we called a parenting seminar. Uh, it was an opportunity that we were taking as a church to help our parents uh, be better, more godly parents uh, in the discipleship of their children. Uh, we talk often about being a family church, being the family of God, and, and yesterday uh, was just a huge encouragement where we got to encourage each other together as the brothers and sisters of Christ, as the family of God who are seeking to train the next generation of believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the most exciting things for me yesterday was there were four teaching opportunities. We had four different sessions. We had breakfast together. We had a few sessions. Then we had lunch together. Out of those four sessions, I only uh, had the opportunity to teach one time. Uh, because as a church, we're striving to train up leaders in the church. Uh, and yesterday, uh, one of our deacons, Rob Toxeris, and his wife, Kate, uh, who co-lead our children's ministry, taught uh, alongside myself. Uh, Rob taught one session with everyone together. Then we broke up into separate groups, men and women. Rob taught that session, and Kate taught the other session. And then we came back together, all four of us, for a panel. And I can tell you, as a pastor, one of the most exciting things that happens for me is to get to see others in our church grow in godliness and then begin to lead others in godliness. So yesterday, I was encouraged in the process of parenting, but I was even more excited to see folks from our church be trained up and teach others inside of our church. So I wanted to just share that with you so that you can rejoice with me in the exciting things that the Lord is doing uh, right here at Crossbridge. And, and hopefully our families will help. I want to say a big thank you to Rob and Kate and to everyone else who worked together to make that particular event uh, an incredible success. If you haven't already, open your, your Bibles up to the book of Malachi. Today, we're, we're only going to be looking at one verse, as I think it's necessary for us to have some background as we launch into this study on the book of, of Malachi. What I want to try to expose to you today, the, the thesis of this particular sermon is that as New Testament believers, you and I uh, primarily know the New Testament. We're, we're those who have been saved after the cross of Jesus Christ. We spend the bulk of our time in the New Testament. Because of that, the Old Testament is often neglected or in some cases even misunderstood. But the Old Testament is the Word of God. It is the Word of God that sets the foundation for the New Testament. It reveals the nature and character of God and is relevant for the church today. 
So we want to take some time to pause to study the Old Testament, one particular book from the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. This is the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, And I thought it would be interesting to study the last book of the Old Testament before we enter into Advent season. Can can you believe that Christmas is just right around the corner? Uh, We're close to Advent season already. And many of you, as you came in today, uh, were experiencing already the cold of the change of seasons. Uh, Any other cold weather fans out there? I know there's like three or four of us. Amen. God bless you. Uh, Most of us, though, like the beach and we like warm weather, right? Is that the majority of everyone here? Beach, beach or snow? Beach, all right. Well, I'm sorry the Lord's progressive sanctification for you as you live in an area where there's snow and and cold weather. So we'll, we'll agree to thank him for that, amen? As we look at the book of Malachi, before we we launch into actually looking at the book of Malachi, I want to build an argument. I want to build a case for you as to why we should study the Old Testament as New Testament believers. Since we know about Jesus Christ and Him crucified, why is it important for us to go back and understand the Old Testament since we already have the New Testament revealed to us? What's the point of doing that? I want to give you this morning three reasons the Old Testament should be studied today. Why we as a New Testament church should study the Old Testament. Number one, it sets the stage for our understanding of the New Testament. If we look at three of the main events, or arguably the three main events that happen in the New Testament, the birth, the life, and the death and resurrection of Jesus, those are arguably the three main events that that happen in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. When we look at those events, they actually don't make much sense without the foundation of the Old Testament. Uh, hold your finger in the book of, of Malachi, but, but flip a few pages over to the beginning of the New Testament in the book of Matthew. If we just start at the beginning of the New Testament in the book of Matthew, it starts with something that's, that's called in most of our Bibles, you probably have a, a title above chapter 1, verse 1 in your Bible, and it says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or, or something of that nature. And it almost feels like, if you read the genealogy, it almost feels like you picked up this story kind of in the middle, that there's something else that was going on that happened before all of this genealogy is given to us. Um, does, this, does this ever happen to you? Maybe as, as parents, you can, uh, you can sympathize with this. Um, sometimes I walk into a room, and my children are in the room. Uh, they've been doing something or, or playing in the room, and they start to tell me, what was happening halfway through what their thought process was. And I know right away there are more details that I need to know about uh, versus what's actually happening in that situation. That is a sense what happens here at the beginning of the book of Matthew. It almost feels like we're in the middle of the story. And we might start asking things like, why do these names matter? Like if you're reading through the Bible in a year, There are sections like this that oftentimes we'll just skip over because we feel like they don't apply to us. Am I the only one who does that? Everybody else is more spiritual than me here. You actually read all of it. This might be one of those sections that we go, why? Why is this here? Why do these names 
matter? And why in the world would the New Testament start with this particular list? And so if you're like me, you just skip over the first 17 verses and you get to verse 18. And what we find there is the excitement around the birth of a baby, a very special baby. And right away we start to find out why the genealogy was listed and why we must know it. The genealogy ends with making mention of two special people, Abraham and King David. And as we read on, we find that this special baby is in the lineage of both of these men. So to understand the specialness of this baby, in a sense, is to understand these men and their relationship to God by the covenants that God had made with him. And where do we find those? In the Old Testament. So to even understand Jesus' birth and the significance of his birth, there are some things in the Old Testament that we must understand first. As we read about the baby, we find a quote in verse 23. In most of our Bibles, verse 23 is set over to the middle of the page to indicate that it's a quote. And can you guess where that quote came from about Jesus? The Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 to be exact. So even from the beginning of the New Testament, it encourages us to go back to the Old Testament to learn some details that will help us understand what is going on. As we read on in the New Testament, we see Jesus speak about his own life. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 17 through 14, we read these words. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. If you want to turn over a few pages to that in your Bible. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14 through 17. Speaking about Jesus, we hear these words. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were opposed or pressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Again, in reference to Jesus in the New Testament, it takes us back to the Old Testament, again to the book of Isaiah 53, verse 4. As the New Testament moves on to the death and resurrection of Jesus, it again quotes the Old Testament in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 40, we see this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, so Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. This is their response to him. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, if you are a true teacher, give us a sign. Here's Jesus' reply in verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of who? The prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here, Jesus quotes Jonah 1.17 in reference to his own death, burial, and resurrection. Do you know what this tells us? Time after time after time that we encounter this in the New Testament and we go back and review the Old Testament, what it tells us is that the whole Bible is about Jesus. 
He is just as present in the Old Testament as he is in the New. And what we see him do in the New Testament is built on and understood through the Old Testament. The second thing, the second reason that that I would want to relate to you as to why we need to study the Old Testament today is that it tangibly and visibly reveals the nature and character of God. It, It reveals, the Old Testament reveals the nature and character of God. And it reveals the nature and character of God, not just in theological terms, but in practical terms. We get to see the holy justice of God in action in the Old Testament as he punishes those who break his law. And at the same time, we get to see his love and patience with his people over and over and over again as he forgives them and protects them even when they are disobedient to him. We get to see the eternal nature of God in that he exists before time began. We get to witness his power as he speaks the universe into existence. We get to see all of these truths that we know to be true about him in action as God interacts with his world and his people. We get to see God in a very real and tangible way. The third reason I think the Old Testament needs to be studied today is that the Word of God is as living and active as the day it was written. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. In the preceding chapters, uh, or verses of that chapter, Hebrews chapter 4 in the book of Hebrews, the Old Testament is quoted as the Word of God. So in saying the Word of God is living and active, the author of Hebrew himself quotes from Psalm 95. The the author of Hebrews is applying the Old Testament as relevant to us today in that it discerns our thoughts and intentions. And to neglect the Old Testament is to neglect the majority of our Bibles, the majority of the Word of God that he has given to us. So with this in mind, we begin our, our study, in a sense, in the book of Malachi. Uh, there has been a, a joke uh, that's been going around the office uh, about the name of the author uh, of Malachi. Um, Yes, some of you know this already. Uh, You know that one of our employees at the church here is Mr. Peter Sinner, an Italian from Brooklyn, who cannot look at the name Malachi and not hear Malachi. So as you think about the book of Malachi, know that Vito Malachi is very much alive and well in, in the scriptures. Uh, and I was laughing at myself the other day because I was doing a search in Malachi and I had to, or a search in Logos, which is a Bible study program. And I was trying to think about how to spell Malachi and Malachi is a lot easier to spell in my mind than Malachi. So there you go. Now you can have that in your head too. But here are some details and some books that I think are s- some details and history of the book of Malachi that, that are important for you. 
The author of the book of Malachi is Malachi, which seems simple to us because the book opens with the saying, the oracle of the word of Lord of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. But Malachi could be a proper name, or it could be a term meaning my messenger. Many of us are familiar with names that have a significant meaning to them, and it's no different with Malachi. His name means my messenger. And in fact, further on in the book, in chapter 3, verse 1, this word is used again, but the context determines that it means my messenger. Uh, If this isn't a proper name, though, this would actually make the book anonymous, which would make it anomalous amongst the minor prophets. All the other prophets, minor prophets, we know who the authors of the book are. So in fashion, typical fashion of the other minor prophets, it seems that this one would start in the same way with the author being mentioned. The audience for this particular book is the nation of Israel. Uh, It's dated between the completion of the second temple, which would have been about 515 or 516 BC. And I've had to think a lot about this, right? Because before, at BC, the numbers go down as it moves farther along, right? So the higher the number, the older it is, and the lower the number, the, the younger it is which makes way more sense when I just said that out loud when I, than when I thought about it this week. So it, the, temple, the second temple was built around 516, 515 BC during the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, the book is traditionally dated around 430, between 450 and 430 BC. I've seen it dated as late as 460 BC, but I would tend to, to side more towards the, the 430, 440 time frame. We know that the temple has been rebuilt, though. How, how would we know that it comes between the second temple and the reform? The reason that we know that is because the, the temple is referenced in the book of Malachi and sacrifices offered to the temple. So the temple has to be reconstructed for there to be sacrifices made. The temple was rebuilt under Haggai and Zechariah, but it's corruptions, what we're going to see in the book. And you need to hold on to that word, corruptions. The corruptions that we see in the nation of Israel and even in the temple is going to actually prompt God in the book of Malachi to call for the temple to be closed. But again, let let me remind you to remember the word corruption. That's going to be so important as we move through this study. The book starts by telling us that this is an oracle of the word of the Lord. Here here are two things about that. An oracle is a technical term in prophetic literature introducing a message from the Lord. There's a lot of places that we see that happen, like Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 12, verse 1. Nahum chapter 1, verse 1, and Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1 also mention these oracles. But an oracle, it literally means to carry. And in in most of these cases, it means to carry a message that was burdensome. That this message normally had ominous content for the hearers. This book actually contains six oracles of disputations between God and the nation of Israel. So when you think about breaking the book down, it breaks down into six main disputes between God and the nation of Israel. 
And each one of these disputes contains two elements in it. It begins with an affirmation of the Lord's elective, electing love for them and then lays out a charge against the people of Israel. So there's a back and forth between God and the nation of Israel in which God continually espouses his love for them, but at the same time brings charges against them. As we work through the book, the thing that you need to have in mind, the scene that you need to have in mind is very much a courtroom scene, that there's a charge brought against the nation of Israel and then a feeble attempt for them to dismiss the charge or defend what they had done. If you think about that all the way through the book, each one of these sermons is going to make a lot of sense through that light, that there's a charge brought against them, and they're trying to dispute it. But here's what I want to spend the, the rest of our time doing together. I want to answer this particular question. Because I, I, set, I said that the Old Testament sets the stage for the New Testament, and I want to reveal to you how Malachi itself sets the stage for our understanding of the New Testament. What is happening in the book of Malachi as larger issues that will set the stage for our understanding of the New Testament? Here's the first one. The spirit and attitude of the nation of Israel in Malachi sets the stage for our understanding of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the New Testament. When we see what's happening in the nation of Israel, especially among the religious elite in the nation of Israel, we get a very clear picture of why things were the way they were when Jesus arrives in the book of Matthew or in the Gospels. It paints a very clear picture of how the worship of God devolved in the worship into the worship of self. In the six disputes, there are six main issues that are discussed. And here they are. The love of God for his people, his commands on how to worship him in the temple, marriage and idolatry, God's goodness, the neglecting of the tithe, and the justice of God. Now, if you just take that information and run it through what you know to be true about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the accusations that they've, got, they've brought before Jesus, doesn't that sound exactly like many of the issues that happen in the New Testament? These are the disputes that God brings against them. When we come to the New Testament, we find a section in Matthew 23 where there are seven woes given by Jesus to the scribes and the Pharisees. And much of the sin that we see in the book of Malachi continues into the practices of the nation of Israel and its religious elite. Jesus sums up what they have done and what they do in verses 1 through 3 of Matthew 23. He says this, Jesus says to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They have a position of authority and so do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. So as we work through this book, think about how these practices have continued on, and what we might find is that they have found a home in the modern church as well that the sins of the nation of Israel that were perpetuated in the Pharisees and Sadducees did not end with the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
And if we are not careful, we will fall into the same issues that they fell into these so many years ago. Not only does it help us understand and set the stage for our understanding of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, let me suggest to you that the book of Malachi reveals the need for a Savior. The people of God all throughout the Old Testament always struggle with sin. Their lives are filled with sin and shame. And they can never earn the favor of God or find a way to pay for their sins on their own. But listen to the words of Malachi in chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the salt. Who do you think that is? Who is the Son of Righteousness? Well, the New Testament tells us. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus speaks to them, and what does he say? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Malachi reveals that Jesus is the Savior that we all need, and he is revealed in the New Testament as well, or in the Old Testament as well as the New The final thing that I want to point out to you in terms of how Malachi sets the stage for the New Testament is that Malachi points to the coming judgment of all people. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will stubble, will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. You see, this points to the day of future judgment when everyone will be held accountable for their lives here on earth. And those who do not have Jesus Christ as their Savior will face the fiery punishment of God. Malachi describes those who are against God by being disobedient as, uh, against his word as stubble thrown into the oven to be burned. Let me suggest to you also, as we look at the book of Malachi, there are several elements of God's nature and character that are revealed there. Let me give you just a, a few of them in overview of the book. Some of the elements of God's nature and character that are revealed in Malachi are first and foremost his holiness. Malachi chapter 3 verse 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the scorners, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me for the says the Lord of hosts. I'm always fascinated by passages like this where God takes sins that seem to be worse sins than others, but makes it very clear that his holiness and his justice will not stand for any of them. As a holy God, he hates anything and everything that is against him and his law. He will judge those who break his law because he 
is holy. But not only is the holiness of God on display in the book of Malachi, also, so also is his love. In the next verse that we're going to look at next week, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. Speaking to a very rebellious, disobedient people at this point in the nation of Israel, how does the oracle start to them? I love you. Just a few verses later in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, he describes his relationship to the nation of Israel as a father and a son. He expresses a very fatherly love towards them. He does the same thing in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. He expresses to them this love, even though they're disobedient. Over and over, God testifies to his loving care of his people. But tied to his love is another character of God that we see revealed here. It's a word that's used often in the Old Testament that refers to God's covenant faithfulness. It's worded this way in the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. When he says, I have loved you, and the nation of Israel says, how have you loved us? Here is how God responds to that. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This passage is a reminder of a covenant that God made with his people to protect them and to provide for them. And even if enemies rise up against them, even if there are those who try to bring the nation down, God has made a covenant with them which he will be faithful to. He continues on this covenant language in Malachi chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, So you shall know that I have set this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I will give them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. What we see over and over in the book of Malachi, and we see over and over in the Old Testament, is that God is faithful to his covenants, even when his people are not. And this should be an incredible comfort to us, brothers and sisters, that God will keep his covenant that he has made with his people from all time, including us, that even though now we were we who are under the covenant of grace can know that God loves us and will forgive us even when we sin because of the covenant made in Christ's blood. But here's how I want to end our time today in thinking about the book of Malachi and thinking about it practically in terms of your life or my life, your life, and the church. And the way that we can do that is by answering this particular question. Is the book of Malachi really as living and as active 
as the day it was written? Does it fall inside of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? Just as a refresher, here's what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, brothers and sisters, we must be reminded that Malachi is the inspired word of God. And it's inspired in that it has its source in God. Uh, this past week, Kim and I went into the city. She had a follow-up doctor's appointment, which, praise the Lord, that went well. Uh, but I, I actually love going into the city. Uh, I'm still enamored by the ability that God has given us to build these structures that are just unbelievable. Um, and we, we ended up on the subway, riding from one place to another, um, and just so you're aware, during the day, the city's not as dangerous as the news says. But if you go to the city and get mugged, don't blame me, all right? I didn't tell you to, to go. I'm just saying it wasn't as dangerous for us as it sounds on the news, which, you know, go figure, the news isn't telling us the whole truth. Anyways, one of the things that I love, which you're going to be shocked that this is true, is the smell of the food trucks when you come out of the dank subway and the smell of like the halal food and the roasted nuts and whatever else is going on there. But inevitably what happens to me is I walk out, I get that wonderful smell, I turn the corner and then the sewer smell like knocks me to the ground. Now, if we were talking about the source of something, if I offered you water from that sewer, how aptly would you be to drink it? Uh-uh. I'm not going to. But if I offer you a bottle of, like, what's the, what's the best bottled water? Like Fiji? Is that like the Poland is good? All right. If I offer you a bottle of that water, how aptly would you drink it? You would drink it immediately. Why? because the source is radically different. One is a polluted source, the other is a pure source. This is how we have to think about the Word of God. The reason that we take the Word of God in and we drink it down deep is we trust the source that it came from. And as the inspired Word of God, its source is God Himself. Not only is it the inspired word of God, let me say to you that if 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is correct, it is relevant to the church today. Remember that first phrase in the book, or in verse 16, all scripture, not just some, not just portions, but all. And all scripture is breathed out by God. It has its source in God. But what does it say after that? It is profitable. All Scripture, because it has its source in God, is profitable for us even today. Even though it was written thousands of years ago, 
It was written and uh, carried on by a God who intended for you and I to have and read it today. It is profitable for your life and for the church today. And it is profitable, it is relevant in that it is applicable to our lives today. What does it say in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that it's profitable for? It says that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness with a goal in mind that we as the people of God would be complete, equipped for every good work. That includes the book of Malachi. That Malachi is intended by God from before the beginning of the time to be profitable to equip you for every good work so that you could be complete in the Lord. Now, how, how do we go about applying this to our lives? So this is going to be very important. This is the portion where you start to really think about what I do with the book of Malachi as I study it for myself and as I hear the sermons preached. If it is profitable for teaching, let me encourage you to think about teaching as doctrine. And oftentimes doctrine gets a bad rap, but doctrine is the very foundation of how we should think and live. So the question that we should be asking is, how is this passage calling me to think about the world around me and my own heart? How is it teaching me to think about God's world and me as part of his creation? So as we study Malachi, you should be asking, what is this passage teaching me about God about my and about myself? But not only is it profitable for doctrine, this passage tells us that it's profitable for correction. Correction is this idea of asking the question, where has my thinking gone astray? Where do I need corrected in my thoughts and my beliefs? Because you guys know all of us have a little bit of heresy in us, right? Did you know that? There is something that you believe right now that is not accurate in terms of the Scriptures. And all of us would like to think that we're Jesus and we know it perfectly, but let me tell you, we don't. We need the scriptures and we need each other to speak the truth into our lives to fight against any kind of heretical belief that we may have adopted. And the book of Malachi is given to us by God for that purpose. Correction has the idea of thinking, but reproof has the idea of behavior. Where doctrine is teaching me to think, correction is correcting my thinking, and reproof is change of behavior. So I need to be asking as we go through the book of Malachi, where is Malachi calling me to change my behavior? Or maybe the better question is, where am I living contrary to God's word? And then the the final one in in 2 Timothy 3.16, it tells us that all Scripture is profitable for instruction in righteousness. In other words, what is this passage calling me to do? Or another question to ask is, what does righteous living look like in my life according to the Word of God? Here's the challenge that I want to issue to you over the next several weeks in this study. I want to challenge you to read all four chapters every week, 
but it's really tangible to do every day. That you would read it continually. Determine to read all four chapters every week, if not every day. And then through this lens of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, hold the scriptures up to your own life and examine where it calls you to change. But let me just say to you also, friends, if if you're here today or you're under the sound of my voice, the main thing that the scriptures are calling you to do today, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, is to repent from your sin and turn to him for salvation. This Jesus Christ that the entire Bible is about is the perfect God-man. You see, all of us were born sinners. Only one person was born sinless, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died on the cross as the payment for the sin debt that we owed. And the only way to have that sin debt forgiven, the only way to be restored in relationship with the holy God is to confess that we're a sinner and to receive the forgiveness that he gives to us in Jesus Christ. So if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, the Scriptures are calling you to turn from your your sin, to repent, and receive the free gift of salvation that Jesus Christ gives us. But brothers and sisters, Christians, those who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, as we walk through the book of Malachi, the temptation is going to be to look upon the nation of Israel and look down our noses at them. But as we walk through the book of Malachi, what we must be careful to do is realize that in many ways, the book of Malachi might be about us. That the sinful behaviors and actions that we see exhibited here in this book might be putting a finger right on something that is in your own life. So before we we rush to judge the people in this particular book, let us first look upon the mirror of Scripture to see if we are not being described here in the book. I look forward to the next several weeks with you leading up to Advent season. Uh, Let me challenge you again to continue to read this book. Pick up one of the study guides. Follow along with us. I hope that you're blessed and encouraged uh, through this particular passage. Uh, Let's pray together and ask the Lord uh, to discern his word and to be built up and equipped for the work of the ministry through this study. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us your perfect word. Without it, we would have little to no idea about what you're like. We would be left to grope around in the darkness to try to figure out who you are and what you expect of us. But you have graciously given us your word that reveals who you are, why you are worthy to be worshipped, and what we are to do to worship you. Lord, help us to think diligently about our lives and about your word so that we would, through your power, see if there is any wicked way in us. That if, we, that if we too have fallen into any sinful thinking or patterns in this book uh, that are evidence to us in this book, that you would help us correct those to live for your glory. But Lord, I ask too that as we do this study, although we will be confronted with our own sin, that the thing that will continually be built up and raised up in our minds is how glorious you truly are, 
how loving you truly are, how great you truly are, and that you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our lives. Lord, thank you for loving us when we were unlovable. Thank you for being faithful to your covenant that you have made with your people. Lord, may you be magnified in our hearts and minds and our lives today as we prepare to move from being the church gathered to the church scattered. May your love and goodness and your light, the light of Jesus Christ, shine from us in a lost and dying world. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.